There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. It's Friday, September 30th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, brought to you by the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. Get an estimate and learn more at steamfitters-602.org. Today, we hear the story of a Rockville, Maryland couple, both doctors, who are now indicted on charges they conspired to help Russia in its war against Ukraine by sharing confidential health information of U.S. federal and military employees. Our Mike Marillo tells us the details of the federal indictment against this local pair. She even admitted at times her husband, she called him a coward at one point, saying wow. he was too worried about violating HIPAA laws, but she wasn't, and she does it all the time. According to court documents, that's what investigators say she told the undercover agent. Then we speak with Andrew Hammond, historian and curator at the International Spy Museum, about how agencies go out collecting intelligence against people they suspect could be spies, and how common this kind of alleged espionage can be, especially in our region. You know, never be surprised. Anybody is potentially a spy, but that doesn't mean that everybody is. And of course, in the grand scheme of things, we're talking 0.000000, but I think that around the DMV, then you can probably take away a couple of those zeros. Thanks for joining us. I'm Luke Garrett. Megan Clorty is off today. A federal indictment says a Rockville couple, 39-year-old Dr. Jamie Henry, a major in the Army, and his wife, 37-year-old Dr. Anne Gabrielian, an anesthesiologist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, met with an undercover FBI agent they believed worked for the Russian government. According to the documents, they met with this undercover agent multiple times in hotels throughout Maryland and ended up handing over the medical records of people in the U.S. government, including the spouse of a naval intelligence officer, as the person had medical information that Russia could exploit. The indictment from the U.S. Attorney of Maryland, Eric Bannon, says it was Gabriellen who instigated this whole process. The documents say her spouse, Henry, allegedly gave an agent the medical information of five people who are either veterans or related to veterans. Joining us now to really help us understand what's going on here, these you know potential spies among us, is WTOP's Mike Murillo. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Good to be with you. So to start, let's really talk about who these potential spies, Russian spies, are. Anna Gabrielian and Jamie Lee Henry. They are husband and wife in Rockville, Maryland, and... One, uh, Gabriellian is an anesthesiologist, or was, at Johns Hopkins. And Mr. Henry was an Army major who was the staff internist at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. So two medical doctors, uh, both one in the military, so access to the military records, and the other at one of the area's largest medical providers, Johns Hopkins, so in, in Baltimore, of course. And uh, according to this indictment, we have Gabriellian who reached out to the Russian embassy looking to help Russia after the war in Ukraine began. Right. And the indictment says Henry actually had secret clearance to documents. So we know that they had access to high level information. But what I want to know is how did the FBI find out that these two allegedly wanted to give secret documents to Russia? You know, what really put them on the FBI's radar? 
you know, reading these court documents, it, it said that essentially an FBI undercover agent made contact with Gabriellian saying that, you know, we understand you reach out to the Russian embassy pretending, of course, to be a Russian representative mm. and to see what she was trying to offer. Because apparently she emailed and gave a phone call as well to the Russian embassy. Kind of a bizarre way to start a connection, I guess, in this sort of situation. But that's yeah. what she did to offer up her help. And somehow that got on the FBI's radar. So an undercover agent met up with her and that started this whole process of seeing what she was wanting and willing to do uh, to help Russia. And, right. and uh, so that kind of led through the whole thing here. But yeah, it, it was a bunch of hotel room meetings, as you hear with all these sort of spy and document sharing sort of things. It's always in a hotel room, right? Or some park, some discreet park, a bench out near the water or something. Right. But, you know, there's a, a case here. So back and forth, you had started with Gabriellian, who was kind of the head on this. Mm. She even admitted at times her husband, she called him a coward at one point, saying wow. he was too worried about violating HIPAA laws, but she wasn't and she does it all the time. According to court documents, that's what investigators say she told the undercover agent. So you have this situation where she kind of built up and it seemed like she was in charge of this happening and the couple doing this. But in the end, throughout these meetings, you had both of them reportedly handing over information, according to prosecutors. And Mike, you mentioned this briefly, but what really was Gabriellian's, you know, motive here? She said she felt uh, patriotism for Russia, toward Russia, after the war in Ukraine began. And you also had Henry as well saying that he actually looked into enlisting as a volunteer for the Russian military at some point. So then you have a U.S. military member looking, and according to prosecutors here, admitting that he looked into volunteering for the Russian army. So, But both of them seem to be on the side of Russia, at least according to these court documents and what prosecutors say they told investigators. And what stood out to me, too, when reading these court documents is that they asked for, like, cover stories, you know, plausible deniability. It seemed like they were trying to be kind of savvy all the while speaking to an undercover FBI agent. Yep, that was the whole thing, right? They didn't realize that they were not talking to a Russian representative. They were talking to an FBI agent. But yeah, she had cover stories, apparently, to where she had plausible deniability, she said, because especially for her husband, right? He's a top security clearance for the military and a, a doctor in Fort Bragg. So you had this, I guess, cover story. And also she went to the point of saying, I want a system in place that my kids would be taken on a vacation to Turkey, uh, essentially, if things started to go towards maybe she was going to be arrested. Mm. So she was even trying to account for the kids the couple have together as well. So there was this initial meeting on August 17th, and then they met again. And that's where this handover of documents really occurred. And, you know, you know, the crime or what they were indicted for happened. So tell us about this second meeting where documents really exchanged hands. Yeah, you started to see some high ranking former and uh, current military members and their families' medical records being turned over, both from the uh, the wife and also the husband. So you have, um, you know, no, there's been no admission of where she got the documents, but she was working for Johns Hopkins at the time. Actually, I reached out to them for a statement. They said they're working with investigators, but that's all they're saying. But you kind of expect that as they try to figure out what's going on here, because it seems like the 29th is when they said she was separated from Johns Hopkins. So maybe they just found out as we found out not long before anyway. So you have uh, you have these two people using their clearance and their computer access, I guess, you know, and violating HIPAA laws. And that's really what a lot of this case bases is based on, is that not only are they charged with conspiracy, they're charged with also violating HIPAA laws. 
right? And the implications for these documents are kind of wide-ranging. I mean, there's an Army officer, there's a current Department of Defense employee, spouse of a U.S. Army veteran, and in the indictment it says these records could be used by Russia to exploit the United States. But also, she said that she had information about how armies set up war zone hospitals. So even more information that apparently they said they were willing to share to help Russia. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out as it moves through the court system. Again, no one's guilty until you get your day in court. So right now, we're just seeing what they said to the uh, pretend Russian representative. And as we look forward, you know, what's next? There's this indictment out. But obviously, as you said, legal processes have to you know move forward. What are we looking for? Uh, Well, moving forward here, we're just looking to see, you know, where this goes and how much of this sticks, you know, when it comes to pleas and when the uh, attorneys uh, represent each other. I know one important thing I want to note about this case, because there's been some publicity with it. Henry is uh, been reported on in the past back in 2015, came out as one of the first or the first transgender member of the military. So Jamie Henry came out back in 2015 as an openly uh, transgender member of the military. Now, we were checking on that because it was surprising to us that, you know, back then there were we had the she pronoun. Uh, we reach out to the court and apparently his lawyers and in court, he's referring to himself as a male. So that's why we are referring to him that way. And this indictment, you know, does have quotes from Henry himself. You know, there are two real quotes that kind of sparked my interest. One is about a book that Henry says Gabriellian instructed him to read. The book is called Inside the Aquarium. And apparently it's a book that really is about, you know, making yourself a top secret Soviet spy. And Henry is quoted in the indictment saying that this, you know, book kind of aspires a mentality of sacrificing everything. But there's also another quote that shows that there was kind of maybe possibly an internal conflict within Henry. The quote reads, My point of view is until the United States actually declares war against Russia, I'm able to help as much as I want. At that point, I'll have some ethical issues I have to work through, end quote. Gabriellian is then quoted to saying, you'll work through those ethical issues, end quote. So it sounds like there were some conflicts, you know, like even within this discussion of handing over documents. You got to believe he's a member of the military, right? So, you know, you're you have a lot of things that you need to be careful about, especially if you have top secret clearance that apparently he had, at least according to what investigators are saying. So, again, it's going to be interesting to see how far this goes and, you know, what ends up being the case, what they may admit or may not admit to uh, investigators about what they were planning on doing, because, in a lot of these cases, you will see potentially some sort of plea deal come. So we're going to have to see. But yeah, he had a lot of access and he had a lot of trust in the United States government. It's an interesting case in that, you know, you have this person here with all this access who's willing, essentially telling this person they just met who they think is a Russian representative, they're willing to give it up and they might only have some ethical issues if there's an actual war. So pretty much saying I'm willing to go to this extent, giving the goalposts before he has to really consider what he shouldn't or should do. So it's interesting. Well, Mike, thank you for you know helping us understand this complicated and wide ranging story. We'll keep an eye on it. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me. And after the break, are there spies living in your neighborhood? We talk with a Wilson Center fellow and historian of the International Spy Museum about just how common this kind of activity is in our area. Backed by the experience of its hardworking members, Steamfitters Local 602 is ready to take on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project. 
Steamfitters Local 602 adds value to our community through its partnerships with local contractors and building owners, all while keeping the focus on improving the lives of its members and their families throughout the DMV. For work that's on time and on budget, go to steamfitters-602.org to schedule your next project. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Thanks for listening to the DMV Download. If you like this show, give us five stars and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and your reviews really do help other listeners find this, our area's only in-depth daily local news podcast. And thank you for making us a part of your day. After hearing the accusations against Gabriellen and Henry, we wonder how common is it that people we know are spies? It seems like a big question, but it's one we're putting to Andrew Hammond, who is a historian and curator at the International Spy Museum. He's also public policy fellow at the Wilson Center and has a background in intelligence, having worked for the Royal Air Force. Andrew joins me now on Zoom. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's a pleasure to speak about this subject. Espionage is so integral to human history. Uh, I think that it's something that we try to educate the public about here at the International Spy Museum, just how central it is and has been. So let's get into it. So we just heard the details of a case against a Rockville couple charged with trying to give sensitive information to the Russian government. Understanding that you're not involved in this case, let's kind of zoom out and look more broadly. How does the FBI and other agencies find out that someone is trying to contact, you know, a potential enemy or other country we don't want having some information? I think the first thing to say would obviously be this is a, you know, this is an indictment, uh, and this couple are innocent until proven guilty. But just taking it out to the thirty thousand feet view, I think that there's a variety of ways that they find out. So it can be a direct tip off. It could be that they have intercepted communication somehow. It could also be something a little bit more oblique. So, for example, uh, an archivist with the KGB defected to the United Kingdom in 1992 and took he took with him a bunch of documentation that helped counterintelligence investigators piece together the puzzles of the spies that were in their own midst and that actually led to the arrest of uh, George Trofimov. So there's a variety of ways. It could be intercepting communications, it could be a tip-off, it could be uh, something more oblique like the one I just mentioned, or it could just be bad tradecraft. It could just be when you're trying to establish secret communications, there's there's tradecraft that tries to keep you safe and the people that you're speaking to safe. But if you don't follow that tradecraft, then you leave yourself open to being uncovered. Mm, in other words, being you know a bad spy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> right. You recently delivered a presentation called Spy Rings in American History, and you mentioned a network of Russian sleeper agents arrested in 2010. I mean, that's just 12 years ago. You know, how common are these stings and how common more broadly are spies in our grocery stores, in our stadiums? I think if you look at even just this century, so 2001, Robert Hansen, the most damaging spy uh, in FBI history, is arrested in Northern Virginia. In 2010, we have the Russian 10 that you just mentioned. Last year, we had, you know, we've had people in, in the DMV uh, arrested. So even if we just look at this century, it's, it's fairly common. I think that one thing that I would say as a historian would be, don't be surprised that this happens in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years. Because looking at the past, this is something that's been part of the story of America, of the story of uh, humanity. 
So it's something that's probably always going to happen. But to go to the second part of your question and the comment that you opened our, our chat with, how common are they among us? I think the short answer to that would be, if we just look at it statistically, or if we think about it logically, they're much more common in the DMV than they're going to be in most other parts of the country, mm. if not if not all of them. Let's think about why. Well, Washington, D.C. is the capital city of the, the world's biggest superpower, the richest country in the world. There's 18 intelligent U.S. intelligence agencies that are our neighbours. There's so much going on in Washington, D.C. You've got the World Bank, you've got the International Monetary Fund. So this is a, a global epicentre for intelligence and espionage. Think about the amount of people that work in intelligence at the DOD or across those 18 intelligence agencies, or even the amount of people that have secret security clearances like Jamie Lee Henry, one mm. of the people involved in this case. There's there's just a... I guess it's 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 one of those cases where it's a happy hunting ground if you're looking for people to try to recruit. So I, I would say that don't, you know, if a neighbor invites you over for a cinnamon roll and a cup of coffee, by all means go. But in the <laughs> in the grand scheme in the grand scheme of things, statistically there's a higher chance here than in probably most other parts of the country, but it's still very unlikely to happen to you. Mm, right. It's like, it's like a shark attack. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And what does it mean that there is a war going on? I mean, that must charge things, but I guess I'll just give that question to you. What does espionage, spy activity mean, and how does it change during wartime? Great question. If you think about the birth of American espionage, a lot of that can really be traced back to World War II, because war focuses attention on certain things and as you said there it creates this almost instant pot environment where things are more pressurized things are more combustible if you want to put it like that if you think about what's going on here so we've got two nuclear armed powers both with a strategic stake in a third country in this case ukraine we've got both of them we've got the world's biggest and most successful military alliance nato which is nuclear armed, up against the Soviet Union, the biggest country in the world. So there's a lot going on here. It's a very tightly wound situation. It's not a secret, unlike sometimes during the Cold War, where it would be a covert action. There would be arming, maybe an army, but we try to keep it secret. In this case, it's pretty open what's going on. So just to answer your question, war really does make things much more intense and the potential for this one because of who we're talking about the two countries with the most nuclear uh, weapons in the world uh, the NATO involved the Soviet Union involved and in this one country Ukraine I don't want to scare people but I mean they should definitely be concerned right I mean so you know just gleaning from what we've been talking it sounds like there is counterintelligence intelligence actions kind of going on underneath the surface as Joe Schmoes and just regular citizens who don't necessarily have a direct involvement, is there anything we should look out for, keep our heads on a swivel for? I mean, what is the day-to-day -day impact here? I think the main thing to say would be, if you think about the public education campaigns in the United States or in the United Kingdom, if you see something, say something. So that doesn't mean, you know, it's obviously a spectrum, but if something just doesn't sit well with your gut, then maybe there's a reason for that. 
Now, I think that one way that people can arm themselves, if you want to put it like that, is just by digging more into this, becoming more educated, learning more about what's going on. So, for example, you mentioned underneath the surface. So the the podcast that I host for the International Spy Museum is called SpyCast. And one of the, the things that I say in the introduction is that this podcast is going to teach you about a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. So you, you're very right. It's there. It's underneath the surface. It's going on all the time, all around the world. It always has been. Uh, it will be going on around you. Uh, there's a decent chance if you're in the DMV that you don't live within a million miles of, of an intelligence officer or a spy. Um, but I think that the answer is educate yourself, uh, get up to speed on what's going on. And if something doesn't seem right, then think about why it doesn't seem right. You know, never be surprised. Anybody is potentially a spy, but that doesn't mean that everybody is. And of course, in the grand scheme of things, we're talking 0.00000. But I think that around the DMV, then you can probably take away a couple of those zeros. Well, thank you so much for coming on to help us kind of understand this under the surface world. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And it's great to speak to a fellow podcaster. <laughs> likewise, likewise, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks again. And before we go, joining us in the studio is digital editor Rick Massimo. And if you thought we were done talking about spying and espionage, nope, we're not. There's always more. There's always more. So Rick is actually the author of many books, but one of the books is A Walking Tour of the Georgetown Set, which I won't explain because I didn't write the book. Rick, what is the Georgetown Set and how does it apply to spy and espionage? Well, in the Cold War era, there was a whole elite of journalists and bureaucrats and, and some spies and counter spies who lived very close to each other in the Georgetown area. They hung out together. They walked to work together. They had dinner parties, which was like, at the time, was like the main way to uh, to socialize in D.C. Right. You didn't have political fundraisers. You didn't have the metro. For part of the time frame I'm talking about, you didn't have the beltway. Going over to people's houses was how they entertained themselves and each other. And you had all sorts of people there throwing all sorts of parties. Right. And like these parties were the center of information. And as we've been talking about with power players, information is where you get your power, basically. Well, absolutely. And, you know, sort of the pinnacle of that principle was the was the parties that Joe Alsop would throw in this house on Dumbarton Street in Georgetown, where, I mean, you he just had everybody over there. He had the uh, all sorts of bureaucrats other journalists, administration officials, all that sort of thing. And they would sit around over terrapin soup and get drunk and uh, and chop it up over the over the issues of the day and <laughs> which were like nuclear Armageddon. When John F. Kennedy uh, found out that there were nuclear missiles in Cuba, he went to Joe Alsop's house. Well, you know, he was already scheduled to go to a party there, but he also, like, that's where he, he pulled aside some of his Russia experts, his Soviet Union experts who were there, and said, so, uh, look, uh, here's what's happened. Uh, I need to know what, uh, I need to know what you think of, mm. of Khrushchev and what, and what we're going to do. What we're going to do. Wow. Well, I am lucky enough to have been 
gifted or you let me borrow this book, so I'm actually halfway through it. I have to return it, uh, by the way, but yes. I'm halfway through, and it's it is really fun. I live in Dupont Circle, so I do walk over occasionally to Georgetown and you know check out each of these locations because there's like dozens of them in the book, and uh, it's well worth the read. So if you're interested, check it out. Dupont Circle is where uh, somebody tried to deck Joe McCarthy, and Richard Nixon broke it up. Really? Yeah. Wow. Rick Massimo, just an endless source of historical facts. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Thanks. And that'll do it for our show today. Thanks for joining us for the DMV Download. We're sponsored by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. And also tell your family and friends about this show. We love telling more stories to more people. You can also follow us on social media where we're posting content every day. If you want to find out more about this show and become one of our VIP listeners, go to dmvdownload.com. The DMV Download is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at WTOP.com, and of course on the WTOP News app. It's going to be a rainy one, but have a good weekend. See you Monday.